0: our heads in a word of prayer and get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again to be here with one another as your people to worship you, to exalt your name, to recount the many ways that you are kind to us, show us your love and goodness, the ways that you are patient to us, with us, and That You withhold Your your judgment and how You abide with us, Lord. Always teaching, always instructing, always disciplining as we need. We thank You for that, Lord. We thank You that You are a God who communicates with us, who teaches us who You are, reveals to us Your Word and Your will for our lives, the way that You desire to be worshipped, how we can fellowship with You, Lord, and that we can approach You in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can come to the throne of grace because He has gone before us and He represents us. We ask, God, that as we do come to Your throne of grace today, You would open our hearts and instruct us, God, make us more like Your Son, give us ears to hear, uh, eyes eyes to see, Hearts that understand. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles, everyone, to the book of Ephesians. We are in part four reforming marriage communication rules. We've been going through a few of the principles regarding biblical communication. We find that from Scripture, God communicates. God speaks. That's where communication begins. And it matters immensely that we hear His voice. We we close our ears to His voice, to His revelation at our peril. And so when it comes to communication, we want to understand how God communicates, how God speaks. And we want to conform our communication to Him. One thing we don't often bring up is the fact that God is the master communicator. If anyone knows how to Speak, if anyone knows how to be clear, if anyone knows how to get his point across, it is God Himself. And early on in this series, we discussed a very important truth that when God speaks to us, among other things, He speaks to us with grace. That is sort of the heading in all of this. When we speak, we want to speak words of grace, words that are conducive to building up one another and of course that finds its home most profoundly in marriage this is a series on marriage but many of the truths that have been presented in this entire series are also <coughs> also have a, a a greater application many of the things that we say to one another how we say them why we say them are sourced in marriage and our marriage is going to be uh, it's going it's to flow out outwardly to uh, many other aspects of life. And I think one of the closest in proximity is the church. So in, in marriage, when it comes to the way we communicate with one another, it's definitely going to find its way to other places. And it's very difficult to simply talk to one another in our homes a certain way and then to immediately flip a switch and talk to each other a different way when people are watching. And so we want to put away that kind of hypocrisy. We want our communication to be consistent. Consistent in its truth, consistent in its godliness, but also consistent in its purpose. Anytime we communicate, we want to communicate the grace of God in some way. We want to communicate the truth of God in some way and find that it will do its work effectively and completely. But we want to do those things consistently. And so as we go through this, we want to understand that God is our ultimate standard. That He speaks to us and we want to speak to one another with a similar character. With a similar strength. With a similar truth. If God is the God of truth, we want our communication to exemplify that. If God is a God of grace, we want our communication to exemplify that grace. And I find that's one of the first things, the first major things that changes. I think you may have found that too. That when you become a Christian, when you are born again, one of the first things that changes that you notice is the way you talk. The very substance of what you say changes. The very, again, spirit, why, the motivating factor behind what you say changes. It's transformed. How you say things, right? The style in which you speak changes. And we want all of these things to be conformed more and more to the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this communication, this communication of grace will be a great blessing to your marriage. Don't want communication to fall apart because usually the next domino to fall apart, to fall is the marriage itself. And so, because you are married to one another, husbands and wives, you are going to have to talk to each other. We keep confronting ourselves with that important truth. You're married to one another. You are one flesh. Therefore, you have to communicate. You have to communicate to one another. And so we're looking not just for communication, we are looking for a type of communication. A communication based in the character of God, instructed to us from the pages of Holy Scripture. And as Wayne Mack says, very helpful quote, in terms of not just communicating, but, a, but communicating effectively. And he says this, that effective communication is the process of sharing information with another person in such a way that the sender's message is understood as He intended it. Unless the sender and receiver have come to a common meaning, they haven't communicated effectively. But focus on that. Common meaning. Where do we find meaning at all? We find it in Scripture. So it follows that in order to communicate effectively, you have to have the same starting point. There is no way to overemphasize that. The importance of God and His Word being the starting point of effective communication otherwise you will carry to the table you will bring to the table different meanings you may say the same word you may say the same things but you will mean different things entirely so you want to mean the same things and that means having the same source and so we're drawing toward the end of our lessons on marriage and I don't even think I'm going to try to get to verse 32 today in Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll do some cleanup on certain things but uh, one thing I don't want you guys to do, and this serves as a, a gentle pastoral exhortation, if you will, I don't want you to take all that I have just said, all that we've taught in the last several weeks, um, and simply go home and forget about it and fail to apply it. It is, it is easy, and I've, you know, I've been in this situation before myself. It's easy to, it's easy to hear things from the pulpit. It's easy to hear the the, the pastor or the Sunday school teacher say something and you think sitting there, oh, that's good stuff. You may even take notes. You may even ponder it throughout the day. But the things that are spoken from the Word of God are meant to be binding and authoritative throughout all your life and to every part of your marriage. These are not things that you want to apply temporarily and then forget them soon after you've heard them. So it's easy to hear, thus saith the Lord, nod your head in agreement, but then as time goes on, grow dull to those things or even forget to hold yourself accountable to continue to apply these things. And it may be difficult. I guarantee you some of these, many of these, uh, these truths spoken from scripture will be difficult to apply consistently. That is why you as husbands and wives need to remind yourselves of these things constantly. It's not, I'm not trying to get you to, to nitpick or to brutalize one another with the truth but to be willing and and, and humble to acknowledge the fact that in order to grow, in order to be sanctified, conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, truth needs to be applied constantly, needs to be applied regularly. And so don't forget that as we go forward that you are responsible, especially you men, here's a good Father's Day reminder, right? As head of your home, as head of of your wife, you are held first and foremost responsible to continue to bring these truths to bear so that you do not forget them. Because it is easy to grow slack, it's easy to grow lazy, and it's easy to you know, violate what I'm going to present today if you don't continue to uh, apply these things continually and consistently and setting an example. Because once they're, once you're actually confronted with them personally, it is, it is very difficult in many cases to to continue to take correction and if you can't take correction it's going to be difficult for those charged to your spiritual care to take correction from you remember we've talked about the fact that it's hard to take correction from a hypocrite and so one of the things we're going to go over today is what comprises rule number four of communication remember communication rules. And so if you're not there already, Ephesians chapter 4 is our text for today. And uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to focus on two verses. That is verses 31 and 32. Remember, Paul is discussing the Christian's walk, not in isolation, but as a member of the corporate body of Christ. And he is emphasizing this pr- principle of unity in the Spirit that we not only grow in Christ, but we grow together in Christ. And so he's speaking to the congregation here, and in verse 31, he caps off his argument with this. So hear the word of the Lord. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so here's rule number four, right? There's four in all. The first is be honest. Remember keys to communication in your marriage. Be honest. Right. Tell the truth. Lay aside falsehood. Verse 25. Speak truth. Each one of you with his neighbor. That's an abiding command in Scripture, reflective of the character of God. He always tells us the truth. Therefore, we should tell one another the truth. Secondly, is keep current. He says in verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity so keep current, right? Keep short accounts. We hear that a lot. Keep short accounts with God, right? Confess your sin, repent, don't let sin linger, don't let the devil get a foothold. Well, apply that same in truth to your marriage. Keep short accounts with one another, right? Be quick to confess sin, be quick to expose sin, be quick to forgive sin, and be quick to move on and pursue godliness together. So be honest, keep current. Thirdly, Attack the problem, not the person, right? While we expose the sin that we witness in one another's lives, we do not continue to brutalize one another or harp on one another. We say, let's, let's get to the issue at heart here. <clears throat> let's solve this problem. Let's solve this sin problem together. Don't continue attacking one another. Don't continue resenting one another. Don't continue, again, using, using that conflict or, or known sin as an opportunity to compete with one another for supremacy. Remember, the only person that is supreme in your relationship is Jesus Christ. Not you, husband. Not you, wives. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you strive together to pursue peace in your marriage, when you continue to attack the problems that conflict and sin inevitably bring, and you attack those problems together for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, your marriage will be one that is blessed, and your marriage will be one that is strong and reflects God's love for His people. And so we come today to rule number four. As I said, we'll probably just get through verse 31. But it is this. Rule number four of communication. Act, don't react. I love it that these are based in Scripture because we may be tempted to think that this is some kind of lesson in pop psychology, but it's not that at all. These are biblically rooted uh, principles and applications to strengthen your communication with one another. So act, don't react. And sometimes we, we deal with that, we, we're confronted with that problem in our marriage often. Usually there's one of you who tends to be a more reactive person, a more volatile person. It is a blessing when both the man and his wife are not easily angered. They are not volatile, but sometimes often you will find that either the husband or his wife tends to be a little more irritable, a little more volatile. Maybe their sin problem is anger more than it is other things. And so we have to deal with that issue. Surely, the church of Ephesus did. They had to deal with this issue. And so Paul says, remove this, right? Lay this aside with all the other things I've just instructed you, right? Let all bitterness and then everything that follows be put away from you along with all malice. So this is this continual act of putting off ungodliness, putting off Things that are characteristic of who you were in Adam, who you were apart from Christ, and then putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh. And this will remain, I think, a huge rule of communication in your marriage should you apply this faithfully and consistently. Act, he says, don't react. And sometimes these reactions tend to be uh, very unexpected, right? They can kind of come out of nowhere. And I reminded, if you go, if you want to nerd out with me a little bit, one of my favorite classes in high school was chemistry. And I loved chemistry because we had something called lab. You know, oh, it's lab day. We get to play with chemicals. I mean, it's genius, right? Bunch of teenagers give them some chemicals, put them under a hood. What could possibly go wrong? So one, and so we were talking about reactions, right? When you put one chemical with another, you know, what's going to happen? And often the unexpected would happen. One of my favorite exercises um, in chemistry class is when you would put a chemical known as potassium chlorate in a test tube. It's just a yellow powder, right? It doesn't really do anything. Then you put it over the Bunsen burner and it liquefies and it bubbles and then it becomes potassium chloride. And then what you would do to everyone's amazement, we, would, we would always use a gummy bear. We take the gummy bear and we would put it in the test tube and kaboom! You get flames shooting out of the test tube. It was pretty awesome. And this reaction that would come out of nowhere would come from the least, the least expected two things. You would think, how could something as sweet as a gummy bear be a catalyst for this kind of reaction? And you may be thinking the same thing about your spouse. How could someone so sweet play a part in this kind of volatile reaction in our communication and our relationship? And yet... It happens. And that's why we have Scripture to guide our thinking and to guide our speech toward one another. So he says, act, don't react. And you will notice if you read further on, even in verse 32, and we'll get to those later, that those qualities described and those actions commanded are not reactions. Those are things, those are character qualities that are continually nurtured. They are responses but they are not reaction. And so keep that in mind when we deal with putting away all of these things that Paul warns us about, because these are things that can distract, I mean, they can distract at at best, but they are destructive at worst. Because, as is common with other sins, they tend to find a welcome home in our lives. Once we give them quarter, they just tend to kind of camp out, and then before you know it, They completely take over your communication and your relationship, and we want to guard our hearts against that. And so how do we react? We react in many ways. Just to kind of review some of the ways we do this, we react by using 100% language. We've talked about that. You always do this. You always do that. You never do this. right? Just basically refusing to acknowledge any kind of redemptive behavior in what your spouse does. Any, any light that may exist in, in that particular context of their behavior or speech. We react by clamming up, right? Where we just sort of freeze in place. We don't really know what to say. We react, and you'll find in this text, by getting angry. I think that's the most common reaction. That's why we call it a reaction. Sparks fly typically, and not in the good sense. We react by getting angry. We react by assuming the worst. We've warned against that continually that when you communicate with one another, when you are solving the various issues and difficulties of life, is that when you come together as man and wife, don't assume the worst about each other. Most of you, I would, I would hope all of you, that when you stood on the altar and made your vows to one another, you weren't thinking about the other person, man, someday this person's going to completely betray me. They're just going to be an awful person. You didn't assume the worst the very fact that you're standing there, you were, you were assuming the best about that person. You were looking forward to a joyous marriage full of live, laugh, love and that kind of thing. We react by retreat. Most of you have been through this interaction. It gets a little, it gets a little volatile. Someone says something that maybe they shouldn't have said or maybe someone said something perfectly true but you didn't like what they said and so you just said... I can't do this right now. I can't do this right now. And so that continues for years in your marriage. And you're like, okay, when are we going to do this? But that's what happens. That's a common reaction is retreat. I can't do this right now, but let me tell you, according to God's word, yes, you have to do this. Sometimes right now. Sometimes it can wait a little while for you to cool off so that you're not reactive and you don't say something stupid. But we react by retreat. We react also by comparing ourselves to one another. Most of us have started a sentence with, well, at least I... See, immediately there's a problem there. Don't make yourself the standard in your marriage, right? Set the example, right? You set the example, but you are not the standard. God is always the standard. But don't compare yourselves to one another. Once again, that's just that's just unnecessary competition in your marriage. You want cooperation, not competition. So don't compare yourselves to one another. So, we react in in a variety of ways. And we we got to come full circle and say, well, let's attack the problem, not the person. Let's sort this out. How about we do this? Let's sort this out as a Christian couple using God's Word as our standard and the Holy Spirit to guide us. How about that instead of reacting? Let us respond to one another. And I think this, for many people, is a great mystery. We recognize that we are Christians. We are presumably, by faith, filled and, we would hope, dominated by the, the presence of God's indwelling Spirit, both individually and corporately. That's why we have the opportunity to pursue peace via communication, because we serve the same God, but we still react. And I hope that these, these explanations will help soften our hearts toward one another Uh, to, to a, to a significant degree. Because we understand that even though we are redeemed, right? We are born again. We still have to deal with the flesh. We are still afflicted by some of the, the oldness, what we call the curse of sin. And that's the first, that's the first explanation. See, we have to be sympathetic with our remaining frailties, right? The remnants of our old humanity. There is still the curse of sin. What we call the noetic effects of sin. This doesn't mean that we act like Noah from time to time. Noetic simply speaks to the mind. That sin affects our ability to perceive and understand reality accurately. No doubt we've all come away from certain interactions with our spouse or fellow Christians, and and we say, man, you know, I remember that way different than you did. (laughs) I don't remember you saying that. I don't think that that's what happened. And that's just... Some Those mistakes are just part of being fallen creatures. Sin affects the mind. And affects our perception. And so because of that, it's easy to get on the defensive as soon as correction or truth is brought to bear. And we would say, wow, we're Christians. We should say, man, I received that. Thank you for telling me that. That's going to be really helpful to my walk with Christ and to the joy and unity in our marriage. And a lot of the time that doesn't actually happen. We go on the defensive and we react. And instead of asking questions for for clarification, we are reactive in a way where we attack our spouse. And it serves the point here that as Christians, we should ask questions for clarity's sake. If something is being brought to our doorstep, as it were, if something is being exposed, to humble ourselves and to ask questions for clarity so that we can see our error, our sin, clearly and respond to it with God's biblical prescription. And you'll find that that kind of humility can prevent many conflicts from even occurring or from, from growing. And we definitely, I would say, that's that should be your starting mindset. Whenever your spouse brings something to you to consider right they they point out a sin or even just something that's bothering them right the first thing i think is to be inquisitive ask questions right that that, that could be the number one uh, preventative thing that you do to keep you from going on the defensive and then of course to keep you from going on the offensive ask questions humble your heart get clarity and then you will be you'll find that over time you will be more inclined to be able to To come and go to one another with those various issues that are of concern. You don't want to get to a point where you're like, man, I wish I could, I mean, how many times do we say, man, I wish, I wish I could go back and start all over again and, and not say what I said. Instead of saying something hurtful, saying something that was offensive to go back and, and be teachable and humble and ask, okay, how can, what, what is actually going on here? And how can we resolve this issue together? And so that follows reason number two. One, of course, is the curse of sin. We continue to battle against sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. But because we are still flesh, we are still human, we tend to be impulsive, right? We don't think things through before we respond to correction. Galatians calls this walking in the flesh. And sometimes we do that. We follow that temptation. And this is a way that, that's, that the flesh rears its ugly head. is when we don't, think an issue through and so we are reactive we don't think about what it means to love that other person to love to men to love your wife to consider what she has to say to you and on, women on your, from your side when your husband has to bring correction to bear you don't think okay what is what is a way that I can submit to my husband's leadership and honor him when he brings the truth of God's word to bear instead it's reaction it's going on the offensive And that's what it means to be impulsive. And of course, what is God's remedy for that? It is the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. It is self-control. And and I think Jeremy could attest too, many many of the things that actually lead to church discipline that Emmaus wrote historically have dealt with the issue of self-control. When we have to counsel, you know, in in many cases, it's men. When we have to counsel them, you know, we say, we have to say, what about self-control? You're looking at this all wrong, bro. You're acting like you are enslaved to this sin. And if you are in Christ, you are not a slave to sin. Exercise some self-control because it is God who produces it. Don't deny and don't deny the Holy Spirit's power. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit because you're effectively denying any authority he has over you when you act without self-control. So use those times in communication to respond with self-control and listen to what your spouse has to say. That way, you avoid all kinds of strife and division and warfare in your marriage through communication. Here's another thing, and this is tied, this is tied very intimately with impulsivity and with our fallenness, is, and that is we tend to react based on feelings Rather than the truth of god's word right we've've we've, we've, we've juxtaposed these two things with one another, and that is is truth driving our feelings, is truth driving our emotion, or are we letting our emotions dictate what the truth is we've already said emotions are a good thing they 're part of our image bearing capacity god God created emotions, so they are good. The problem is that emotions were never meant to be. To be authoritative in our lives. They were never meant to be the final testimony of what is and what is not. So we are to submit our emotions to the Word of God. And so when, when some, when your spouse has to correct you or to expose something in your lives, yeah, you may have all kinds of feelings. You may have feelings like regret. You may have feelings like anger. You may have feelings like annoyance at your spouse that they had that they had to call you out on something and how dare they. And yet as a Christian, right? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to submit your emotions, you are to subject your feelings to to the authoritative truth of God's word. So that they do not have the final say over your behavior. That's very hard in a day and age when we are basically told that we just need to let our we just need to let it all hang out, right? follow your heart right your, your your emotions are always good be driven be led by emotion and yet god's word says something quite differently while emotions are a good thing we are to subject all of those things to the word of god to take every thought captive and even by extension any affection any feeling we may have we subject it we take it captive to the obedience of christ and we can and we can labor long on this because so, so often it is emotions that end up ruling the day. And if, and emotions can be so volatile that years can go by in your marriage before you're ever able, if you even are able at a certain point to talk through certain issues that play a huge part in, in the, in the pain and agony of your marriage. I mean, think of it in the context of health and medicine. You go into the doctor's office. And they say, you know, I hate to break it to you, but you have cancer. But, but, here are a couple things that you can do that will guarantee that not only will you make it it out of this situation alive, but will return to full health. Now imagine you sit there and you say, you're telling me that I have cancer? Doctor, that is offensive. Take it back. Throw that diagnosis away. But we do that to each other in marriage. How dare you say that? That's, you know, what, what an ugly thing to say that I have cancer. So you're immediately reacting. You're not acting. You're reacting. You're not attacking the problem of cancer. You're killing the messenger. But we do the same thing to communication in our marriage. We focus on how we feel about what is said. We're not asking is what My spouse, my loving, godly spouse said true. We're not asking that question. We're saying, how does what they say make me feel? And we use those feelings to dismiss the truth of what they are saying. That's what it means to be ruled by emotion. And no, we want to be ruled by truth. Because if we are ruled by truth, we can be ruled by grace. And that is exactly what we want for our marriage. We have to say that, you know especially under you know our first point here that we are we are still living yes we are we are witnessing in real time the reconciliation of all things right the reconciliation of all creation to christ and yet there are the, the curse still remains that means our feelings can be sinful that means our thinking can be sinful so ultimately We cannot trust those things and we cannot make them the final authority. It is always God's Word as the final authority to guide our thinking, to guide our emotions so that we subject both of those things to God's Word. And that all plays in to our communication. It all plays into this issue of action versus reaction. And we find that if we don't heed these things, all these things that Paul warns us about, the bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, all of those things will fester and grow if we are driven by emotion and if we don't let our thinking be subjected to the Word of God. So let's look more specifically at what Paul warns us against in verse 31. And all these things we are meant to put away, these are the reactions that he says must be put off right give them no quarter do not flirt with them do not give these things a foothold in your lives because they will wreak havoc on your marriage and on your other relationships as well but he says this don't miss this these this guiding these guiding words he says let all these things be put away from you let all these things be put away from you this is Paul's instruction. This is the this is the posture we are to take against sin. And in this passage, one of the words that Paul uses is our, our, our theto, which means to raise up or to lift up. These are what we are to do with these characteristics of bitterness, wrath, anger, and so on. We are to put off, that is to raise up or to lift them up. And I think that's a helpful visual with how we deal with these things. Our posture toward them. You think about this, this, this visual of raise up or lift up. On one hand, to lift something up means to remove it. We get rid of it as sin. We throw it away. We take out the garbage, as we've said before. Here's the second thing. It is relief. We put these things away because, quite frankly, they are a burden. These aren't meant to be characteristic of us as Christians. In Christ, we His, his yoke is easy, his burden, his burden is light, and He gives us relief from this burden of continuing in this way. We're righteous in Christ, and these are not meant to be a continual crushing burden. Not personally, not maritally. So we have removal, we have relief, and then I think finally we have repentance. I think that's the main thrust of Paul here. We lift up so as to repent from them, to put them away so that they are no longer sins in our lives. Things that hinder us toward our walk with God. So we are to surrender these things to the Lord in prayer, worship, and thanksgiving, to lift them up as it were, to commit them to His care, To say, Lord, I am weak and I cannot do this on my own. I need your strength, your provision, your grace to lift these things up and to do away with them because you would have it so. We ask for his help. Ask for God's help. Cast all your cares on him, Peter says, for he cares for you. I think a practical way of doing that too is, you know, a couple of things. One, we, we start, we starve those things. Right. We don't give them any quarter. And then secondly, we crowd them out with spiritual graces. Right. We don't merely put away sin. and then there's nothing else. Right. We don't want to be like the man that Jesus describes where our house is clean. Everything is swept in an order, but there's no Holy Spirit. There's no there's no righteous living. And so, you know, the the demon goes and finds more, more more wicked than itself and then the the state of that man and of course the state of your marriage is worse off than it was before. So this is not merely cleaning up your act. This is God-word repentance that leads to righteous living. We get a, we get bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander put away from us along with malice so that tender-heartedness, kindness, forgiveness, with God as our example, rules the day, dominates our marriage relationship. That's what we desire, and so it's not enough simply to put these things away. It's to crowd them out with spiritual graces so that there is no room left for them. And if you read, if you read the Psalms, this is I think this is where Paul is primarily drawing from, Psalm thirty-seven, eight, and he's you know the psalm is the psalmist is telling telling the people you know don't do not uh, do not fret, right? Do not fret when evil men get their way. You know, there's this sort of this puzzlement among the righteous of why do the wicked prosper? That's something that we we all struggle with. Why why do evil people prosper? Why do evil people get away with all the evil that they do? But in Psalm 37 it says, "Refrain from anger, right? Do not be angry. Put away wrath. Do not fret," he says. It'll only bring it'll only bring harm, right? It'll only be it'll only bring destruction. In the Colossians, the letter to the Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives virtually identical instruction. And you think, wow, this is really an issue. It's still an issue today. But the church is constantly called to be putting aside these things. Right. Consistently applying themselves to identifying where these things may be lurking and then calling one another to repentance because they can easily destroy a church. We talked last week about how more efficiently you can destroy something or knock something over and it takes 20 times longer to build it. These things must be handled with care. So in Colossians, same thing, you know, put away the anger, put away the malice, put away the slander, put away evil speaking. Peter says the same thing. Opening of chapter, chapter two, his first, his first letter. He says, put away from yourselves. Malice, right? Slander. Envy, hypocrisy. It's as if the churches are all going through the same challenges. And so we go through the same challenges today that we need to put these things away. We're not, we're not unique in our experience of them. They always challenge the church because the church is God's creation. The church is God's people. And of course, our enemy wants nothing more than to undermine that and therefore, and then from then on to undermine our witness to the world. He wants our testimony to suffer. And what more efficient way to do that than to sow division and sow malice and anger and slander with one another? Because then what happens? We look just like the world. We we, we don't look any different than than they do. And so he says, put these things away. So what's the first thing? He says this, let all bitterness, and typically you will find that bitterness, and it's interesting that he, he names this first, Bitterness is usually the outcome of all of this. When you go down the list, bitterness is usually how it ends. Just being bitter. Some some call bitterness the refusal to treat someone as if they never hurt you. It's sort of this ongoing inner resentment and accusation against someone. A a refusal to forgive, a refusal to to let things go comes from the Greek pikria, which means acrid. Say an, an acrid smell. Something that is a, a smell or a flavor that is a sharp or harsh. I mean, I, I rarely come across someone who enjoys either a bitter or pungent smell or a bitter or pungent taste of something. And yet that's the imagery we have. Something smells. Something is lingering. I, it, it's like when you walk through a yard and you, and you step in dog, dog stuff. And there's so little of it, and, and yet it smells. And you're like, what is that smell? Where is that coming from? And you're looking all around, and it's just at, at the bottom of your shoe, dude. Just take a look. But you barely you, you barely can identify what it is, and yet it's there, and it stinks to high heaven. And let me tell you, it is hard to scrape that off your shoe, and it is hard to scrape that out of your relationship. And so this is why Paul gives us the preventative measure in there. I mean, I think the key to ridding yourself from bitterness is never actually being bitter. And so we're warned about that. I mean, even Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See, bitterness, even though it tends to be secret, something underlying, something not readily visible, it does not stay contained. By it many be defiled see you you carry the stink with you and it's so hard to identify and that's what makes it so dangerous and that is and that comes to the point where you you'll have a if you're bitter in your heart you'll you'll have a hard time hanging out with anybody you'll have a hard time connecting with other christians because you're always waiting for people to let you down and so you'll never expect grace and goodness from god's people and I think Scripture is clear that we are, to, we are to expect great things from one another because God dwells with us. We should have great expectations of one another. Expectations of righteousness. Expectations of, of grace, of love, of kindness, of all the fruit of the Spirit. And hold one another accountable with patience and grace to exemplify those things that come from God. And see to it that no one comes short of that grace. And that's the first thing. That's the first thing we are to put off. Put away bitterness. Secondly, put away wrath from the Greek thumos. This, this wrath speaks of rage. Typically when we understand wrath, we hear about the wrath of God or the wrath of man. That is usually an explosion of anger. right? What we, what we, what we call in our kids a temper tantrum, where there is a clear loss Of of self-control, it's often exemplifying, exemplified in yelling, right? Yelling, shouting, screaming, um, speaking incoherently. You know, you think of maybe uh, the episode in uh, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they told him to his face, "O King, no matter what you do to us, we will not worship your statue." And it says that the king's face changed, like it contorted in rage. He was so mad. That was Nebuchadnezzar throwing a temper tantrum. That was thumos. That was rage. And he says, put that away. Put that away. That is not characteristic of a believer in Christ or the unity of the Holy Spirit. Wrath in, in marriage often looks like it throwing things, slamming doors, threatening one another, and in its worst case, physical abuse. But many times it ends in verbal abuse. And we find and we find, even in, in, in wrath, we find excuses made. Well, you know, I may have yelled, but at least I didn't hit her. I don't know what kind of jackass makes that kind of excuse, but don't be that jackass, my friend. Own up to your anger if you lose control and repent from it, confess it, and put it away. Here's the other one. Not just wrath, but anger. I thought those were the same thing. Oh no, they're not. <laughs> you have bitterness, wrath, Anger. This is what we would call, as one pastor describes it, settled indignation or hostility that frequently seeks revenge. As we say, it takes its time. Revenge is a dish best served cold. You let time go out a little bit, and then you hit them with the unexpected. It's a slow burn, a smolder, so you can kind of see the smoke, but you can't see the fire. And this is probably just as dangerous because it's so difficult to detect, we know when someone has lost control and they are wrathful. You can see because they because they act it out. You can see it; it's very clear. But with this kind of anger, it's a lot more difficult to identify, and so it's a lot more uh, difficult to confront and deal with. So it's that inner inner boiling, and this, of course, leads leads to bitterness. This is a person who is constantly thinking, how dare that person do that to me? How dare that person say that thing about me? And of course, it's never actually brought to the surface. It's just kept inside. And this is why communication is so important as a preventative measure. You never want to come to this point. And often, you will find that this this inner smoldering is there. This person is angry because they believe that they are at a point in their marriage where they just cannot talk about anything. And so if that happens, if commu- at this point, communication is all but shut down. Nothing is talked about. Nothing is confronted. Nothing is ever dealt with. And so at, the, at this point in your marriage, chances are that both of you, to some degree, are nursing this inner resentment toward one another. And you're just, I mean, at that point, you're just waiting for the other person to fail. You're waiting for the other person to just collapse. And you are already at odds against one another. And of course, we don't want that. And so Paul says, put this away. Fourthly, clamor. Oh, there's clamor too. Yeah. Paul didn't leave anything out. I love this because it's like you, we have no excuses here, everyone. There's no excuse. We can't say, well, I don't get visibly angry. Well, are you angry? Are you smoldering inside? Well, well, yeah. Well, that's sin too. Right. Well, I don't. I, I, I'm not smoldering on the inside. Well, are you bitter? Well, yeah. Well, that is sin. And Paul says, put it away. But here we have clamor. And this is, this kind of goes along with rage because clamor involves speaking. It involves whining. It involves complaining out loud. And chances are, if you, if you are bitter, right, if you experience bitterness, if you experience anger, rage, you're never going to stay quiet about the things that are bothering you. Eventually, the dam is going to burst and these things are going to pour out. This word clamor, I actually looked it up this morning. It was interesting. In Genesis 19, where the Lord says, I'm going to go down to Sodom and see if the outcry is as great as it seems. This is the same word used. Clamor for outcry. And this reveals a loss of self-control. This is the the verse we we think that that the lord says you know out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks in proverbs 13:10 we read through insolence comes nothing but strife see clamor leads to strife clamor is saying something because you just got to say it clamor is the kind of outcry which says something right usually loudly but there's no solution offered right there is no redemptive element to it it's just an outcry. It's just someone being loud. It's just someone who wants their voice to be heard. And if there's no redemptive element, it's just a clanging cymbal. Proverbs 17.14 says something similar. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it even breaks out. This is why we have the Word of God. It warns us against these things. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips brings strife, and his mouth calls for blows. That's what clamor does. Clamor's just itching to pick a fight. right? Just to make the hurt and the offenses known. But once again, there's no love attached to it. There's no desire for peace and reconciliation attached to it. It is simply noise based in wrath, anger, and bitterness. At this point... You may resemble Joseph's brothers. Remember, Joseph's brothers just hated him. And they hated him so much, they were jealous, right? They were jealous of, Joseph, or of Jacob's love for him. Text of Genesis describes that they were unable to say a kind word to him. And I would hate to hear, and I haven't heard it yet, but I would, I would hate to hear that you seated in here together are at a point in your marriage where you are unable to say the least kind thing. To one another. You just can't say something to encourage your spouse. You can't say something to build them up. You can't say something to let them know that you love them and that you are for them and that you're on their, that you're on the same team. Be so careful of that. Always be ready to say a kind word. Even, even if you're, even if there is something that has been left unspoken even if you are having a hard time, even if they have offended you, be ready with a kind word. Again, don't be like the gummy bear in the boiling potassium chlorate, which turned to potassium chlorate. Learn from chemistry. God invented it. But clamor. Few things bring strife like clamor. And the attitude of the heart is readily made known. The sentiments are readily made known. And of course, clamor can lead to, here's the next one, slander. Of course, what is slander? Sometimes it's translated as abusive speech. Slander, we typically understand, is simply saying something about someone else that is untrue, or saying something about someone else that might be partially true, but you say it because it's meant to tear them down. It's not said in order to enlist help, right? No redemptive quality, no redemptive effort, no grace just meant to injure them and to tear them down and Paul says put this slander away and so here we've met we've mentioned many cross references in the, of, in the past about the power of the tongue and its ability to light the whole world on fire and I think within slander we also see outright insults we see cheap shots you know imagine a man and his wife a man who's supposed to love his wife a wife who is supposed to submit to her husband, and they're sitting there and they're just using their words as arrows toward one another, meant to tear down one another, meant to get the upper hand in that relationship. And so they use their speech to abuse one another. Put this away, Paul says. Nothing will destroy your... You'll find few things that will destroy a relationship faster than slander. And there is something inherently cowardly about slander because you go and in and with clamorous with a clamorous tone you just empty all your complaints about that person but there's no care for them there's no love for them there's no redemptive there's no redemptive purpose in that and yet you're unwilling to go and say it to them yourself so slander is inherently cowardly listen to what proverbs 22:10 says drive out the scoffer and contention will go out even strife and dishonor will cease. And and, in 1 Peter, we're given an example of that too, that even Jesus, when He was reviled, what did He not do? He did not revile in return. But He entrusted Himself to the One who judges justly. He gave place to wrath. He did not take it out on His his enemies themselves. He gave it to the Father and committed committed judgment to Him. Here's the next one. And this is the last one, lest, you know, lest we excuse ourselves. Getting done here. All right. Malice. This is simply general evil intent. If you think you could excuse yourself by saying, well, I don't do any of the things that just led up to this, malice is sort of the cover-all. Because behind each of these things, whether it be bitterness or clamor or anger or wrath, there is malicious intent right and we find that god compare god cares immensely about the the condition of the heart so he says let all this malice be put away from you right all the ev- all the intention all the evil intention underlying this may it be put away may it be thrown out right commit it to the lord's care for repentance and then of course for reconciliation and we're given here i think again you know what what do we do When this is going on, well, we commit it to the Lord, and we'll read from, very, very quickly from, from Romans. If you want to turn there, I think this is a good verse to remind us of this. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we can commit all things into the, to the care of the Lord. In Romans 12, says this, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I think we forget to apply that verse in our own marriages. Well, it says men. Well, I'm married to a woman. Well, just apply it, right? Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Right? It's said that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So wives, if you really perceive your husband as your enemy, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. In short, the intent there is that by leaving vengeance to the Lord and continuing to do, to show kindness and love and patience toward your spouse, you will warm, you will warm them. I don't believe that the burning coals are referencing judgment, but judgment, but referencing the effect that your kindness will have on them. It will bring them warmth. They will warm up to you. And then it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, right? To resist the temptation to take, to take these matters into our own hands and to act in an ungodly way. But instead to offer this to the Lord's care and to trust Him to deal with it. So, so key, so important. And we understand that without the Lord's help, none of this is possible at all. And so, with Paul's instructions, what are we called to do as believers? We are simply called to put these things away. Give them no quarter. Do not give the devil a foothold. Right? And so that is what I want the focus of today's sermon to be. I mean, we can get into all of the things which we'll wait till next week to replace to, what, what replaces these things, right? What is the behavior that we are meant to characterize? But simply to, to take this lesson today, to meditate on this te- text and to ask yourself. Where are these things in my own heart, right? How have they gained perhaps a foothold in my marriage? And perhaps right now they're completely wreaking havoc in your marriage. So take stock to the degree that they are dominating your relationship and do what Paul says. Put them off, right? Commit them to the Lord's hands. Ask him for help and to help both of you, right? Go to the Lord for both of your sakes, for the sake of your marriage, to bring repentance and to bring restoration in the relationship where that is needed, because you definitely do not want to, um, to fail to estimate the potential damage that these things can cause. We let them go for a little bit, and before you know it, you just hate each other and you're at each other's throats. And you're, and you're practically dismissive of the person. I don't want that to be characteristic of any of your marriages in here. And to, the, to, to whatever insight I have, I don't think that any of you are there, but it still means I don't want it to happen. So please use this text and take stock of your marriage and see where those, where those things need to be exposed. And confess them to one another. Confess them to one another. And then go to the Lord together in prayer and ask Him to intervene and to restore you to each other so that your marriage reflects God's love for His people and so that God is exalted as first place in your marriage. But that's never going to happen until you obey His Word and put these things off, and to put them off for good. So with that, let's pray. Lord, thank You again for Your kindness to us. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its rich instruction and that we can deal with some of these things specifically and as we survey the scriptures, we can see the clear threat that they are—that you know we can't—we we were never meant to look at things like anger or clamor and and bitterness and say, "Oh, that's just part of my personality." But to see those things as sin and that they can they can pose a grave threat uh, to our marriages. And Lord, we we have to remind ourselves that that the Gospel of of Jesus Christ is mighty to save us and to deliver us from those things and to provide us with a sure and ready defense against any of those former sins that, that were put off in Christ. And we remember, Lord, that even those sins were sins that Christ died for. We remember that it was Your wrath, Your anger that was poured out upon Your Son. And that is an encouragement to us. We no longer have to be angry at one another. We no longer have to be enraged at one another. We no longer have to be clamorous or malicious or bitter toward one another. Lord, all of those sins were put on our Savior. And because of that, those sins are meant to rule us no longer. Lord, our, our affections are no longer meant to be dominated by them, but rather are to be dominated by all the, the riches and goodness and grace that comes from Your precious Word. And so we would pray that for ourselves this morning. We would pray that those graces would dominate our marriages and our relationships between between husbands and wives. And that as, as men and as husbands, as fathers today, we our, our passion for You would be rekindled afresh. A passion, God, for Your glory in our marriages. A, a passion, Father, to, to put away all these things, all these sins that can easily creep in and just wreak havoc in our marriages. We, we plead for Your intervention so those things will not happen. We want our marriages to be full of tenderness and, and love, Lord, forgiveness, and all the things that accompany uh, those graces, Lord, we recognize that we can't experience those things without You. And so we can cast ourselves, Lord, upon Your goodness and upon Your generosity to to accomplish those things in our hearts. That our marriage can af- can truly reflect Your love for Your people, God. And that in that love, Christ would be truly exalted. So in all these things, God, we... We commit them to Your care. And we pray for them to be supplied abundantly above all that we can ask or think. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.